Welcome in to another round of the Props and Hops Super Bowl Shuffle interview series. I'm your host, Matt Landis. Thrilled to be joined today by Sharp Clark at Sharp Clark NFL on Twitter. Note there's an E in the spelling of Clark. And Sharp Clark, it's great to have you back on for the audience. If you're not already familiar, you probably will be soon enough. A self-described aspiring NFL originator, also an analyst with 4 for 4. And I've got to say, it's been really fun to observe the rocket ship trajectory since our first conversation on this show back in June. People can find that in the archives if they're interested. But for now, Sharp Clark, welcome back to Props and Hops. Yeah, really genuinely excited to be back with you. Uh, it's it's been, it's been a fun season since the last time we spoke, so excited. Yes, thanks in no small part to your Chiefs and a futures write-up advising a Chiefs Super Bowl ticket that you shared this past summer. Glad to have come across that and definitely enhanced the rooting interest come Super Sunday. And we'll definitely talk Chiefs-Eagles, but I'd also like to kick off this conversation zooming out a bit, looking back at this past season as a whole, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned this season from a betting perspective? It's, it's a great question and one that I probably don't have a full answer to yet because it takes time to really reflect. But this question could also be rephrased as, in what ways did you learn humility this season? Because I think the answer is always humility. And this season, for me, it was about like, I think people mistake what humility is. They think it's like self-deprecation, like I suck, I can't win. That's not humility, that's self-indulgence. I think for me, humility is recognizing what you're capable of and what you do well and what you do poorly without injecting ego into it, because then you can identify where, if any, actual edges lie. So specifically this season, um, I've, I came into the season with a heightened expectation of how well I can model and predict outcomes in games. Um, because that's really, really difficult to do. The, the number of games this season that were decided by things that you couldn't know before the, the first snap or end game variance that was very unpredictable was really, really high. And so I think halfway through the season, I kind of transitioned from focusing on my model that you know predicted scores and instead shifted towards a focus on understanding teams. And it's kind of like my roots, right? It's understanding teams and when they perform well and when they perform poorly and letting the market decide, generally speaking, what the price should be and, and kind of recognizing, okay, but here's why we should anticipate a bad or, or good performance relative to what the market expects and focusing on that angle instead of trying to holistically predict every NFL game. And to that end, when it comes to adjusting over the course of a season, not only are we learning along the way, but sometimes it can behoove us as betters to unlearn certain old habits along the way. So is there anything that stands out if I'm to ask you about the biggest thing that you thought you knew coming into the season, but you've had to rethink over these past 21 or so weeks? I think the biggest thing that kind of hit me this year was I can underestimate the impact that a new coach can have on a team and a player. Um, so I'm thinking specifically about Daniel Jones and Tua Tagovailoa, two quarterbacks who I came into the season very low on. And I had all these reasons why I thought, well, you know, I, I, I get Dayball is a good coach, but like, no matter, you know, he coached, he coached with Josh Allen and Kafka coached with Patrick Mahomes those guys aren't going to have that level of talent in Daniel Jones. So they're, they're not going to be able to do anything with Daniel Jones. Um, and then with Tua, it was like, yeah, okay. Like he hasn't really been that good. Like the scheme hasn't been great, but you know, who cares? 
And in both cases, the, the way the coaches built the game plan around the quarterback's specific strengths and abilities was really, really impressive. And I think I was a little slow to adjust to that impact and, and hang on to those priors a little too deep into the season when I should have been more ready to change my view of these quarterbacks because their their situation had fundamentally changed. Um, and so I think I think the, the biggest unlearning lesson was like, don't stick too heavily to priors when something material has changed. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm excited to see how, how I can apply that moving forward, but that was probably my biggest lesson. And as we're learning these lessons, there are some great benefits that come of it. There can also be some pretty tilting moments that can be some of the most effective teachers along the way for us. So if I'm to ask you, a lot of games that you've had some action on this season, a lot of good insight along the way. But when it comes to the unfortunate side of things, what would you say has been your most tilting moment over the course of this season? So it's actually a double a double whammy because it was the same team with the same spread. It was the Jets plus three and a half. Again, the first time was against the Patriots. Defensive struggle. It was 3-3, headed to overtime. Neither team was going to get in the end zone that game. They kick the punt. They, you know, seven seconds left, kick a punt. The Patriots return the punt for a touchdown, win by seven. I lose my plus three and a half. And then a few weeks later, Jets plus three and a half against the Dolphins. Same thing, you know, defensive struggle. It was nine, six Dolphins. Jets have the ball. I'm like, oh, this is over. I've got my plus three and a half. They do the pitchy, pitchy woo and end up with a safety and lose uh, 11, six on a plus three and a half. So, so losing both of those in that fashion on the same team with the same spread was, was very heartbreaking. I feel like this has been the year of all those laterals just totally backfiring and turning into safeties or touchdowns the other way. This year isn't the first time it's happened, but it seems to be happening at a greater frequency than we've ever seen before, at least as far as I can recall. And maybe that's the echo chamber in the sports media verse with bad bets. That's certainly a brutal way to lose a game. I will say that the beauty of getting the best of the number when you had Jets plus three and a half against the Patriots, I had New England minus three. I figured I was going to push, but getting that miraculous push to a win on the punt return was really exhilarating. So that was actually probably the same moment, one of my more fortunate wins of the season. And to that end, I know it's easy to remember the bad beats. They, they can really sting for a long time, but things tend to even out over time. So trying to keep a balanced perspective, what would you say was perhaps your most fortunate win over the course of this season? Uh Probably, so I bet on the 49ers alt spread against the Dolphins. It was minus 10 and a half. Uh, I can't remember the exact juice, but I was I was going for a juice play where the Niners were going to kind of dominate. And very early in the game, Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt. And I, I just, I mean, I, I had, it was an ele- electronic bet, but theoretically ripped up my ticket and was like, whatever, you know, this Brock Purdy guy, no way he's going to cover. And yet they they managed through, I, I thought the Dolphins played really well. I don't think that the, the Niners really dominated that game, but Things really worked out time and again, and they were up by nine late. And I was like, okay, well, this is over. And then again, one of those, I think it was a fumble by Tua that was returned for a touchdown, uh, led to a Niners win by 16. And I somehow covered my alt spread with a backup quarterback. So that was that was probably my, my best, luckiest win. Love it. Yeah, try to keep in mind those fortunate wins. I know this preseason, there was a Falcons game where Desmond Ritter came in late. I think they were playing the Lions and Detroit could have pretty much run out the clock and they fumble the handoff. The Falcons go down and score a touchdown, including a miraculous fourth down conversion, cover the spread. And right then I tried to tell myself, I think this might've been preseason week one. And just, just remember over the course of the season, things will get rough, but don't forget moments like that because as tilting as the tough losses can be, 
there will be some good breaks along the way. So glad the 49ers returned the favor with a fumble return for a touchdown, breaking positively for you. And I've got another kind of two-part question I want to throw your way, moving on from tilting moments and fortunate wins over to the betting content side of things. Because this year, as your profile has really exploded, a lot of it is due directly to everything that you've been cranking out as a content creator. A lot of people looking to you for really invaluable betting insight. And let's kind of start with the bad news first. Again, not to put anybody specifically on blast, but as you've gotten more immersed in the space and seen things evolve over the past six months or so, what would you say are are maybe some of the lowlights, anything you'd like to see less of across the betting space moving forward? It's a good question. I I don't consume as much betting content as I used to, um, as I shift more and more towards just doing my own work. But I do catch, you know, some things, you know, when I have extra time. Um, The one thing that that kind of bothers me in in the the way that I think most betting uh, content creators talk is there's this respect for the market that like, whatever the market has agreed upon going into kickoff is the true median outcome of that event because the market is always efficient and therefore you know if you have a differing view from what the market says then you must be wrong and i i don't one i don't think that's always true um i think it's a lot more nuanced than that and i think anytime you try to introduce the nuance you kind of get uh a little bit you know shouted down by the you know, the hegemony of, of betting elites, basically. Um, and, and so, like, and they often misinterpret what you're trying to say. So, like, just because you have one specific game where you have one specific angle that the market's not accounting for doesn't mean that you're claiming to know better than the market on every game over the course of the season. Um, and I think, I think people miss that nuance. And the truth is that any better who's betting for profit is by making that bet, declaring that they know better than the market. And, and I think we just all need to be honest about that fact. It's not, you're not saying like, oh, I'm better than everyone else because I think I beat the market. Literally everyone thinks they can beat the market unless they think they're losing better. And I understand that there's nuance in terms of at what point of the week you bet and what kind of market you're betting into. But I, I think it's the lack of nuance in that conversation that, that I think is missing right now. I find that to be a fascinating answer. I have a, a couple of follow-up thoughts there. First off, is there a specific game you recall where you can give an example of where you strongly disagreed? Again, not on a Monday line where there was perhaps an immature market without too much liquidity, but where you strongly disagreed with a closing line and what that process was like for you. Yeah, the the one that sticks out was actually the one that I commented on. Uh, I think I can't remember, it was maybe week four, week five. The 49ers were playing the Rams and I think anyone who was paying like really close attention to the Rams had noticed that their offensive line was really terrible. And without any time in the pocket, the entire thing that made their offense work last year was completely gone and they had no run game. And the 49ers defense was playing lights out. Um, and so going into that game, it was, it was pretty clear to me that the Rams offense wasn't going to be able to do anything. Um, and the 49ers offense is good enough to, you know, like the way it's set up is really good to combat the Rams defensive strengths. We've seen that year after year. Um, and so me and, and some other people that I had, had spoken to agreed with me that the line should have been at least three. Um, I think it closed minus one and a half for San Francisco. Um, and and it, it, in my opinion, never should have been under three. And when it comes to seeing big discrepancies like that in the closing line, I'm curious about the point you made of delineating that just because you see that for one specific matchup doesn't mean that you don't respect the market's efficiency, generally speaking. And as somebody who 
admittedly uses market efficiency as a crutch a lot of the time. I mean, I don't put in the time you do to watch every play of every game. So when in doubt, I will certainly default to market efficiency more often than not. And it has by and large served me well for a decade plus. But I also hear you when you say that if somebody is betting, they're declaring that they disagree with a market, even if they believe it to be hyper efficient. How do you handle that juxtaposition of respecting the market as much as you think is appropriate versus really going out on a limb if you identify spots where you think it may be quite a bit off base, despite how efficient many believe it to be? Well, it's a good question. And I also want to you know, clarify a couple of things. One, just because I think that the market is wrong doesn't mean that the market is wrong. Like that's my perception on that game. Um, it only happened, I think, six times this entire season where going into kickoff, I was saying this line is just wrong. And I think I was four and two on those games. So even even when I'm claiming, you know, this this line is wrong, it's not like it's a 100 percent thing that the market is very, very smart. Um, and so the the way that I manage that is is just managing risk. I'm never betting more than three percent of my bankroll on an NFL game on a side or total. Um, so no matter how strong I think my edges, there's just always things that are unpredictable and always things that I might be missing. Um, and so that's my way of respecting the market is saying, I completely disagree. I am, you know, six points off this line and I'm going to bet my 3% max and that's it. Um, I, I think, I think it's a, a mistake to think that your, your angle is so good that you can, and, unless you have a material, you know, there's, there's always exceptions, right? Like, you know that three guys have COVID and it hasn't been announced yet, including the quarterback. Like, sure, okay, that's different. But in terms of like, my angle is so strong, you should never be over leveraging that angle against the market. Well said. I know that challenging the market at times has led to some interesting back and forth on gambling Twitter. And gambling Twitter has a lot of highlights in my experience, but can certainly still be a snake pit like the rest of the platform from time to time. So I'm glad to see that you've come out the other side and, and we're still here having this conversation today. And thinking about the other end of the spectrum, betting content highlights, are there any new gambling Twitter follows or podcast episodes you've really enjoyed or perhaps some new shows overall, anything that stood out on the positive side to you when it comes to your betting content consumption over the course of the season? Yeah, again, I don't listen to a lot of uh, betting content, but I do try to catch when I can the, the deep dive podcast that uh, Drew Denzik and Andy Molitor do. Um, and there was a particular episode where Drew Denzik was going through it. I mean, he he had, I don't know if, I can't remember if it was bad beats or just bad bets, but he, he, had, he was having a rough week and watching or listening to him go through those emotions live, like a, someone that I respect and someone that bets a lot more money than I do, watching them go through that process was very real. And, and I think uh, the betting space could benefit from more transparency um, and, and honesty from people that are kind of higher up in the space. Uh, because we don't always win, that things don't always go our way. And I think, you know, having that at the outset as like a baseline expectation can can help people relate to people like Drew. And I think, you know, it, it gave me a good laugh, uh, you know, from the outside, a little bit of shade him for it. But like, I thought it was really uplifting to see that, uh, to, to watch him go through that. <laughs> Yeah, I recall vividly the divisional round last year when the Bills-Chiefs game was going down to the wire. That was one of the most tilting moments I've ever observed in real time. And I, I do appreciate his authenticity quite a bit because he's delivered a lot of value over time. But like you said, even when you're confident in a play, by no means does it mean that it's guaranteed to hit. And we all have our ups and downs. So yeah, that kind of transparency and honesty, I think there's a lot more 
room for that across the space. And I had Drew on the show on Monday, having a similar conversation to the one that we're having today. And it didn't get as heated or as tilting at any point. But it's just always so great to see, you know, a certain amount of energy and authenticity. Um, there's a lot, again, a lot of that lacking from some people who sell picks or give off a certain image. So I like your answer that regardless of somebody's overall record or ROI, just having that degree of transparency and somebody who's so real can go such a long way. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about your Kansas City Chiefs. They are playing in the Super Bowl, of course, against the Philadelphia Eagles. And Sharp Clark, if we look at this just from a matchup overall, side and total, the line seems to be settling in for the time being around Eagles minus one and a half, total 50 and a half. Any thoughts as we look at the game from more of a macro level? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great matchup. I think this is a good matchup for the Eagles, um, unfortunately for me as a Chiefs fan, uh, because they're they're built on winning the offensive line and everything flows from there. And I don't think the Chiefs defense is the caliber of the 49ers defense or, or a defense that can really overpower a good offensive line. So the Eagles should be able to do whatever they want um, offensively. I, I, I do have a, a few doubts about Jalen Hurts, especially if this turns into more of a back and forth kind of shootout game. Uh, we haven't seen him be as successful in those kinds of situations. Uh, but on the other side of the ball, the Chiefs also should be able to do whatever they want. You know, Patrick Mahomes routinely dices up a uh, passive defenses and the Eagles, their, their defense is okay. They've got some playmakers, uh, but provided that Mahomes has mobility on his ankle, I see no reason why the why the Chiefs won't also be able to move the ball well and score touchdowns. So um, I think it's going to be an exciting Super Bowl. I don't think we're going to have the, you know, a lot of times Super Bowls start with kind of a dud opener, like, you know, punting back and forth. Maybe it's 3-0 at the end of the first quarter. I think we're actually going to see some scoring early on, um, unlike in some prior Super Bowls. Yeah, I know one prop that's been a staple in my arsenal over time, and, and part of it might have been just running hot for good fortune or reasons that I didn't fully understand. But when I started getting into betting content, Steve Fezzik would often talk about first half to be lower scoring than the second half. Or I think the way that most books phrase it is, which half will be higher scoring and the second half would often have some value. And I didn't know why. And part of it may have been randomness or just pure dumb luck, but that went really well for a long time in this specific matchup with Andy Reid's excellence when it comes to scripted plays or the Eagles on early drives this season, I'm feeling a lot more trepidation. So kind of on the fence as to whether I'll play what's usually an annual staple. And I tend to try to bet that early because it does usually get steamed at this point. I might just sit on the sidelines, but I'm wondering about your answer. One full game bet that you may not be on the sidelines on based on the expectation that we could see some fireworks from both offenses I know the total has seen a little bit of steam recently, but if we're still seeing under 51 is a pretty key number at 50 and a half, do you still see any value on the over in this matchup? I, I see some, you know, I, I recommend, I, I gave out the, the over right when it opened at, at 48 and a half. And then I said, it's good at 49 and a half. When it got to 50, I was like, I'd still play it. When it got to 50 and a half, it's kind of like, if you need action on the get, if you need action on the total, I would play over 50 and a half, but I'm not running to go bet it. I also think you can wait on that over because there's some injury uncertainty. And, and I think at this point, the expectation is that at least a couple of those receivers for Kansas city are going to be healthy and that Mahomes' ankle is not going to be a problem. So if, if there's sort of an asymmetric risk here, it's towards the downside. So if I wanted to bet over at this point, I would probably wait and see if I can grab a 50 or a 49 and a half later. Um, but 50 and a half is fine if, if that's the lowest it goes and all those guys are healthy. 
So I hear you on the injury concern and possibly some asymmetric risk in that sense. And at the same time, I'm surprised to hear you say that just from more of a market reading standpoint, usually as the public gets more involved in a game like this, which we're still going to see probably 95% plus of public money hit the market over these next eight or nine days versus what we've seen in the first five days of these lines being available, public bettors tend to just flood the over. So how do you look at the likelihood of a lot of public action on the over and the Super Bowl being a unique betting event in which public money really can force the hand, even at some sharper sports books, just from a sheer liability perspective? If the public is really hammering the over, they might have to run this up, even when they might not respect all the action they're getting versus what you talked about with the specific matchups that might have some asymmetric risk to go ahead and wait in a normal circumstance. How do you view that through the lens of the Super Bowl betting market? Yeah, everything is is a little bit wonky because of Patrick Mahomes' ankle and and the receiver injuries for Kansas City. Um, you know, it's possible it could get steamed up. I also think that it's already been steamed up. I, I think fifty one is a number where a lot of sharps will take the under, and so I think we'll see some sort of natural resistance to fifty one. It could get to fifty one and just stay there, um, but I I doubt it gets to fifty one and a half. If it does, I think it would get bet right back down to fifty one. Um, so I think we're kind of at at or close to the ceiling of it right now. Um, unless, you know, everything is great for the chiefs, all those guys are playing Mahomes is hundred percent fine. Maybe it, maybe it touches up a little bit, but I think if you're starting to see that coming, I think you can probably bet it before it gets out of control. And when it comes to bets that might be more actionable right now, we've got some pretty robust prop offerings already across much of the betting market. Is there anything player props, game props, novelty props, anything that you see right now that you do think is actionable that might not last for too much longer for those looking to get the best of the number? Yeah, my favorite prop right now is um, a lot of books will have some form of which team will have the longest field goal. Um, so the, where I bet it was, uh, it was a three-way market. So if neither team scores a field goal, then both sides lose and you have to pick the middle. Um, but it was plus 100 on Kansas City to have the longest field goal in the game. Um, and that's and there's a couple reasons for that. One is the Eagles are so analytically driven that when they get in that dead zone of the long field goal range, they're almost always going to go for it. Um, and two, the Eagles are one of the best short yardage teams in the NFL. So wh whenever it's close, if it's third and three, they're going to go for it twice and probably get the first down. Uh, if it's third and five, they're probably going to get the first down. Whereas the Chiefs are the complete opposite. They are one of the worst short yardage teams in the NFL. So when they get in that dead zone, they're much more likely to kick a field goal on, say, fourth and two, fourth and three. Um, they're a little bit more conservative, a little less analy analytically driven. Um, and then in addition to that kind of macro view, I think the numbers are built out based on season-long kicking numbers. And the Eagles have kicked a lot more field goals because they've been ahead so much in games. They've just been milking you know, leads and kicking field goals in the second half. Whereas I think in a more competitive game, knowing they have to keep pace with Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, I don't think they're going to be very inclined to kick field goals. Whereas the Chiefs kick a lot of field goals in close games because they're oftentimes sort of like back and forth, you know, extending leads. Um, it's just a, it's a different style of, uh, of offense that the Chiefs play than the Eagles. And I think it lends itself to more, more field goals. I love that look. And I really do like that price point as well, because to your point, I think the longest field goal prop is a derivative of the full game spread. So of course the Eagles are favored. They would also be slightly favored in a prop like this, but for the reasons you mentioned, I've had the chiefs on my personal shopping list for that exact prop. Haven't pulled the trigger yet. And I'm going to go ahead and get and play on it pretty soon. Cause everything I was thinking, plus some extra analysis you layered in was really enough to nudge me over the fence there. And I think that, Another prop kind of related 
that I had on this in the sites when the betting markets were opening was fourth down conversions in the game, figuring that, okay, the Eagles convert so many times. And we even saw the chiefs as much as Reed can get conservative at certain moments. He went for it in the AFC title game and got rewarded for it. But seeing over one and a half heavily juiced in the range of minus 170, I feel like this field goal prop might be a better way to get in play at a pretty similar concept, just trusting the Eagles to be more analytically sound and maybe they're playing for touchdowns where at certain points the Chiefs will settle for field goals. Yeah, I, I think the big vulnerability is if it is a super tight game and it ends up being, you know, like a field goal game late, the Eagles do have a very good kicker and could, could kick a long field goal to win. Like, but I, I'm willing to take that, you know, take that chance as sort of a negative, uh, a negative outcome on, on the chance that that doesn't happen. All right. Well, I will be in the same boat with you on that front. Two more questions for you here, Sharp Clark, going beyond the X's and O's a little bit and more to the lifestyle side of Super Sunday, weaving in the hops. Now, if I recall correctly, you're more of a, a cocktail and wine guy, and I can appreciate that. There's certainly a time and place for those beverages as well. And correct me if I'm wrong about those two being more your speed, but Overall, when it comes to just enjoying the viewing experience on Super Sunday, any go-to drink or food or anything else you expect to add to that overall environment as you root on your Chiefs in the Super Bowl? Well, I've been preparing for this. I, I went to a brewery in, uh, in Greeley, Colorado called Weld Works. Mm, and juicy bits. they have sours that are just incredible. Um, and I, I'm, a, I'm not a big beer drinker. You, you nailed it. Um, but, you know, when I'm watching football with friends, it's almost like I have to. And all my friends know that I love sours. And so I think the way that I bridge that gap is I will have a tasty sour in my hand uh, while I'm watching the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. Sorry, love it. Super Bowl. <laughs> and as soon as you mentioned Greeley, my mind went right to Weldworks. They have a really famous IPA called Juicy Bits. I prematurely threw that out there. But I like the way you went with sours because they do some great styles beyond the hoppy offerings. But for those outside of, you know, the Colorado footprint, Weldworks has some pretty decent distribution across, I think, much of at least the southwest of the U.S. So Juicy Bits is a hazy IPA, super citrusy and tropical, very smooth. So if somebody doesn't think they usually like hoppy beers, but that fruity tropical combo stands out, then certainly Juicy Bits by Weldworks might be available. And uh, I can definitely endorse that as well as anything on the sour side that they produce as well. Yeah, really, really good brewery. All right, so you've got a good beer definitely lined up for your Super Sunday viewing experience. And then, sadly, once the game's over, we're going to be without football for quite some time. But it doesn't necessarily have to be sad in every aspect. So I'd like to wrap up by asking you what you're most anticipating about this offseason after what I've got to think has been a pretty breakneck pace for the last several months on end. Yeah, for me, the the slowdown starts in the playoffs, right? Because I'm I'm watching every snap of every game. And so obviously when it goes down to six, four, two games, I have so much more time on my hands um, and it's very refreshing. So this week, you know, my Super Bowl prep work was pretty much done in a couple of days. Like I, I don't dive as deep into all the props as some people do. So I've actually already started, uh, you know, my my review of the of the year. So I'm, I'm looking at the teams in depth. I'm looking at my betting process in depth, my results, the closing line, games that maybe the result didn't really reflect, you know, what the right side was to really get a grasp of how I actually did this season. I think if you just go based on results, I think you can come to some misleading conclusions. So I'm, I'm focusing on what my process did well, what it did poorly, uh, what I can, you know, do next season to strengthen my process. I, I, I'm not, I have not finished my journey of, of NFL handicapping. I'm still improving. 
Um, and so that process has already started and c- continues throughout the off season. And that's, that's where my focus is. And, and it's actually a really, really fun time for me because I love learning and I love identifying uh, things that I could do better and then implementing those things moving forward. So I'm just excited to reflect on, on everything that we've learned this, this season and everything I'm going to learn in the next few months about this season. I think that's a perfect way to transitioning to wrapping up here and making sure to let people know they've got to follow you if they're not doing so already on Twitter at Sharp Clark NFL. Again, there is an E at the end of Clark because it's a great year round follow. I remember last summer seeing video threads on Trevor Lawrence. You became kind of the Jaguars guy on gambling Twitter (laughs) or also looking at Zach Wilson and Justin Fields. And I can't wait to see what you come up with this off season. Again, if you're missing football after the Super Bowl. This is your guy to make sure that year round you're able to satisfy that appetite and beyond following Sharp Clark on Twitter. You've also been releasing picks with four for four throughout the course of this season. So that's something that people can definitely consider as well. Beyond that, is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? Nope. Like if you follow me on Twitter, you won't miss anything. I, I make sure and post everything on there. So I, I think I'm, I'm working on a thread about strength of schedule um, and how, how that might impact the Super Bowl specifically. Um, so stay tuned for that. I think I think it's going to be interesting. All right. Well, stay tuned indeed. I want to thank you, Sharp Clark, for coming back on the show, being part of this Super Bowl Shuffle interview series. want to thank the audience as well. Thanks to everybody for tuning into this conversation. I'll be back on Monday with another special guest in the Super Bowl Shuffle interview series. Enjoy the first football-free weekend in a while. We've got a lot of them just around the corner. I will see you early and often next week as we inch our way closer to Super Bowl 57. Up, 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 up.